When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today we are covering Chase Ross of the Marquette Golden Eagles, and I'm here, of course, with the author of the article that we're going to be discussing, Corey Tulliba. Corey, how are you doing this fine afternoon? Nick, my man, it feels good to be back on the Deep Dives show. Uh, it feels good just to be, you know, speaking to you in general about basketball. Um, I mean... Uh, I'm very excited about the entire start of the season and getting to, you know, chop it up with everybody at No Ceilings and just, you know, in the basketball space in general more regularly. Uh, you know, the, the the off season from like summer league to now, even though it was sprinkled with basketball here and there, it just is, you know, just such a long period of the year. Uh, so when we finally are at the beginning, knowing that we have the this long stretch of basketball coming up at every level, it's just very exciting. So I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk basketball. I'm excited for all of it. It's funny. The offseason tends to feel like three years and three weeks at the same time. It's like on the one <laughs> hand, there's you know, very little basketball going on, and that can you know drag a bit for us basketball sickos. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, you know, I'm coming back into the year. And it's like, wow, it's been a while since I've written anything or podcasted <laughs> anything, hasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think, uh, you know, I usually do a few more um, articles over the, the span of the off season, but um, and maybe it had more to do with me moving than anything else. But yeah, I think I would play a factor. Yeah, I think I only wrote like one solo article over, uh, you know, post summer league. So it feels good to be back and get my fingers moving. So you are jumping back into the habit here with your Thrill of the Chase article. So for Stephen Gillespie and Stephen Gillespie specifically, who will listen to this podcast probably at 4 o'clock a.m. Eastern, this podcast will be a little bit before the article comes out, but we are talking about your article on Chase Ross for Wednesday. So for the vast majority of people listening to this, go over to NoSealingsNBA.com and check out Corey's article. But you led into this article with, I think, a really fascinating discussion point about something that most people in the draft space have encountered many, many times. You go into a game, you know, either you're live at the game or watching, you know, on tape back later, and you're trying to, you know, look at one specific prospect, then all of a sudden someone else drops off the page. You're like, who is this guy? And we just had an all-time example of that last season. I wasn't as high on him as some were, but... Bilal Koulibaly was, you know, an all-time example of the, oh, everybody's here to watch Victor, but hey, wait, his teammate's really doing some interesting stuff. And, you know, with Chase Ross, Omax Prosper was, you know, the guy that many people were coming to Marquette games to watch. But for you, Chase Ross was someone that jumped off the page for the Golden Eagles. Yeah, yeah, I think Koulibaly is a good uh, example of that for sure. I, I mean, I remember specifically um, sitting, you know, courtside waiting for the game to begin, watching shoot around uh, at Rutgers versus Iowa, talking with um, Nathan Grubel of Draft Deeper uh, about Koulibaly. And, you know, we were discussing like, you know, draft ranges and, and whatever. And I was like, and I think we had just put our boards in to formulate um, the no ceilings board. And I think I had moved him up to like top 20. And this is, you know, even way before. The, the hype train had started moving and I was just like, yeah, like whatever, like all these boards are fake. Like, you know, just if you, if he looks like a dude who's going to be an NBA wing, like, so who cares if the rest of the boards haven't moved him up yet, you know, trust your eyes. Like if he pops and you're watching for Victor, like trust it. Right. And, um, that's what I saw with chase, you know, I mean, Marquette in general, and even the biggies tournament in general, I, it, it's very overwhelming because there's so many, prospects that you get to see throughout the entire day i mean you know i i got to the garden at probably 10 in the morning and didn't leave until nearly midnight um so you know having chase ross be the guy who really left a major impression on me in a day filled with watching donovan Klingon and jordan hawkins and andre jackson um and 
you know, Osobigadaro and Tyler Kolek and Omax and, you know, just all I, I'm forgetting a, a bunch of the prospects that I saw. But point being, there were so many prospects and this bench player who was playing like spark plug spot minutes was really the guy that caught my eye. Um, so having the opportunity this year and, and having heard that, you know, he's having a good camp was exciting. And I, I thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of chuck a dart, shoot my shot and, you know, give him a little bit of shine early on. So I'm just going to quote directly from your article here because you put it better than I'm going to put it. Uh, so there's no denying that versatility is the name of the game in the modern NBA. Prospects that can dribble, pass, shoot, and defend are all the rage. These are the guys that generate palpable buzz around draft time due to the multitude of roles and lineup constructions that we can imagine them playing in at the next level. It's not always a bad thing, though, to have a smaller yet more defined role when evaluating prospects. And this, I think, is a fascinating discussion when we're talking about the draft space because it's very easy to fall in love with players who have the incredibly obvious tools, right? Like you look at someone who, you know, you brought up Andre Jackson, right? You look at Andre Jackson jump once and you're like, okay, this dude is, <laughs> you know, ridiculously athletic, even compared to the people surrounding him. But, you know, ultimately, a lot of these teams, you know, especially once you get outside of like the top 10 of a draft, you know, they're not necessarily looking for, oh, you know, this guy can do everything for us, right? It's more like, okay, you know, we need someone who can play 10 minutes a bench off, you know, 10 minutes a night off the bench as like a, you know, defense first guard, right? There are teams that desperately need those players. And oftentimes, you know, this is funny to mention as a Sacramento Kings fan, because I feel like this happened basically every year until Monty McNair came along, right? Of, you know, falling for the shiny new toy rather than, hey, this is what we need, right? Who can fill that role? And, you know, Tyler Rucker and I, had a discussion around this with the sort of Keegan Murray, Jaden Ivey debate for the Kings. And Rucker was right on that one. I was wrong. I'll stand up and admit it. Even though I still am very much in on Jaden Ivey, the Kings desperately needed everything that Keegan Murray provided. And, you know, many things changed between that season and the year before, but it's no surprise that they went from a floundering team who hadn't been in the playoffs for a decade and a half to making the playoffs with Keegan Murray starting basically all but the first two games of his career, right? It's like they desperately needed someone to fill that role. And, you know, NBA teams will take big swings on the draft, but sometimes you just need a specific player. And if you find that player, you really should take them rather than taking the chance. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I, I think shout out to uh, Kevin O'Connor from The Ringer. He just released a, a fantastic article um, where he got to speak with, nuggets um gm calvin booth and you, you know he was talking about how they've kind of started to identify a certain type of player that fits the mold of what they're looking for and kind of shrinking down the parameters of what they're looking for um and finding guys who fit their system uh which will allow them you know to to identify players that maybe don't have the greatest potential in the world, but have the potential to become great NBA player uh, players. And, and so when, you know, I, I was in the article and I touch on, like, sometimes it's, it's a good thing to have that narrowly defined role. Yeah. It might tap your superstar upside a bit, but most players are not going to be a superstar. Yeah. And in writing about chase and, and saying that he might be a breakout player, I'm not saying that, I'm ready to shoot him up as a lottery prospect, but I'm saying that he has a lot of skills that I think are going to translate to the NBA and get him on the floor because he can just go in and play a role. And once you're on the floor, you know, sometimes we label these guys as low upside, but like being on the floor and being allowed to develop and actually play is a potent, you know, is a really important part of fulfilling your potential. And it may be an important part of, you know, expanding your game beyond what we perceive that potential to be. Now, you know, I also chase is a guy who played, you know, somewhat inconsistent minutes last year. He had a consistent role. Um, and I think he needs to prove that he can fulfill that same kind of role in a more consistent way. And that's how he's going to pop as a prospect in a still talented backcourt um, where everyone's really returning from that backcourt. So, he, he it's not like this is a layup like oh somebody graduated he's going to be given minutes now sure. he still needs to earn it by being consistent in what he does but the things that he does do are the types of things that i think that 
coaches appreciate at whatever level, um, you know, you're coaching at. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, with these prospects who are not the, you know, top five, you know, headlights blaring like neon signs flashing kind of players, a lot of it ultimately is just about how many different avenues do you have towards that playing time that you need to develop. And, you know, yeah, there's a reason that, you know, versatility is the name of the game in the modern NBA, right? Because if you can do everything, then there are a lot more avenues for you to find, right? Like if you're yeah. six, eight and can defend one through five and are a 40% three point shooter, there isn't a team in the league that couldn't use you, right? right? But, you know, if you have a few sort of, it's not as much a one trick pony thing, right? Like there aren't really many players anymore who just do one thing. I mean, Steven and I actually just talked about this last week, right? Like the Troy Daniels is of the world, the Anthony Moros of the world who could only shoot are starting to get phased out of the NBA. But just because you can't really be a one trick pony anymore doesn't mean that you know, if you have two or three things that you're really, really good at, you don't need to be a 25 point a game scorer to earn minutes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, you know, I think Ross fits the bill. I mean, you know, he has his calling cards, his his specialization, but there's enough ancillary stuff around that, uh, that, you know, it'll allow him to fit into a multitude of lineups. So while his skill set in general may not seem like he's the most versatile player ever, I think that the skills that he does have still allows him to show his versatility and that he could still play off of whatever kind of player, you know, your teams have around you. And I think that Marquette's team and system um, is actually really beneficial in showing that because, you know, they have a lot of really high field players at multiple positions. They run a lot of offense through their big, you know, so Iguodaro and allow him to come off, you know, handoffs or space the floor. And Tyler Kolek's one of the, you know, he might be the best point guard in college basketball this season. And, you know, getting to to play next to a guy like that um, who's going to dominate the ball and still being able to, you know, uh, complement that kind of player as well. You know, he's just, he's showing that, you know, even though he might not be the star of the show, he's still able to star in that role that he has. So we'll get to that calling card for him in a moment, but I do want to stick with this point for one more moment. It is interesting to see players who sort of fit into their role at the college level, because when you're talking about people that make it to the NBA, basically every single one of them, unless you played at like Montverde or something, right? Every single one of them was the star of their high school team, right? And then it just becomes a matter of, okay, are you so good at, you know, being a primary scoring option that you continue to be that at the D1 college level or at the EuroLeague level or at, you know, G League level, wherever you happen to be playing after high school, right? And so it's interesting to me when, you know, these players show up at college and already they're like, okay, you know, here's how I'm going to earn minutes at college is I'm going to be a defense first player. I'm going to be a complimentary offensive player. I'm going to work around the stars around me and I'm not going to complain too much about, you know, not really touching the ball all that often. And a lot of guys have to make that transition once they make it to the NBA rather than once they make it to college. But the flip side of that is if you're already making that transition in college, it's a lot easier to project like, okay, this is a guy who's not going to complain about his touches at the NBA level, right? Cause he's not complaining about his touches at the college level. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, that's, the thing about being a role player, you can't complain about touches because you right. know, the guys who were stars, um, they might pop up out of nowhere sometimes, right? Uh, but a lot of these dudes, you could see it. They're stars, stars. Woman Yama, he was a star. Scoot Henderson, star, right? We we could see that. So some of these guys, we know if if they do have a path to stardom, a lot of times it might be the Jimmy Butler path where you have to come in and play a role and work your way up to that expanded role um, by being a role player and playing off of the stars that you already have. And with the NBA being so talent heavy already, chances are you're going to be playing with a star somewhere, right? Like, you know, even in Portland, you look at Scoot, like, you know, Jeremy Grant's a guy who's averaging over 20 points per game in the NBA. He might not be a guy who averages over 20 points per game as the number one option on a, you know, high level playoff team. But this is a guy who has expanded his game to the point where now he's probably looking at Scoot. He's like, I get it. You're the number three pick and you know, you're this star player or whatever was coming in replacing Damian Lillard. But like I've been in the NBA for 10 plus years and like the offense is still mine. Right. Like, so even those guys still have to adapt to the challenges of playing with the veteran guys who have been there. Um, But a guy like Chase Ross, like 
he's going to come in and just know like, all right, what are the things that I'm going to do that are going to earn me minutes on the floor? And that narrow, simplified role, it's not that the skills are simple just because the the role is narrow, but like he knows that if, all right, if I just excel in that, like that's my path. And I think for a lot of players, you know, especially having talked to, you know, certain players, it's like, you can't take the shots you took in college or in high school, like, you know, and they still maybe think that they can. And that's part of the reason that they're potentially going to be an NBA player. But it also, you know, I think being self-aware sometimes of the skill set that you have is just as important in surviving in the NBA, not just making it there. And I think these are the kind of skills that let you survive and, and last you know, and have longevity, um, rather than just, you know, make it and then bounce around and, you know, flame out. I mean, going back to the Kings, well, again, for the 74,000th time, I mean, that's basically what Jimmer Fredette did, right? Like he, you know, tried to be the same ridiculous scorer that he was at BYU at the NBA level, you know, wasn't, wasn't all that willing to adjust. And, you know, now he's the same sort of superstar offensive player that he was, right? Just, you know, doing it in China rather than in the NBA, because he wasn't quite a 30 point per game NBA scorer, but he was still a score first, score second, score third player who had the talent to score in a professional league, right? You know, I don't want to undersell that by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, if he had adjusted to just being purely a spot up player, maybe he would have had a, you know, 10 year JJ Redick-esque kind of career rather than I have to be the star, the ball has to be in my hands at all times, and I'm going to find a league where I can do that. Yeah, like not everybody could be Steph Curry. Sometimes you have to be Seth Curry, right? Like, and, and that's not a bad thing. You know, Seth's a guy who's had an amazing career, even though, it, you know, he had to go through the trials and tribulations and spend time in the G League and, you know, have to look at his brother being, you know, labeled as, you know, one of the greatest players ever. And now we see the value in, in what he brings because he's providing valuable skills. Um, again, they might yeah. not be super versatile in what he does, but like, he knows his role, he stars in it, and he brings something to the table consistently. And that consistency and bringing those skills is what is going to, you know, keep players in the league in the long term. And yeah, I mean, to be fair to Seth, he essentially did that just at the college level, right? Like he was a star at Liberty and transferred up to Duke and is like, okay, I'm just, you know, going to be a role player, you know, fit in my role, do what I do best, which is shoot the ever loving crap out of the ball and go from there, right? And he made himself a long term NBA role player career off that, you know, despite you know, he did have that sort of scoring punch at Liberty, but he was like, no, I'm going to adjust and I'm going to be an NBA role player. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, like it, it might be a tough pill to swallow and, and maybe less so for uh, somebody who grows up in an NBA family and understands and has that advantage of, you know, having people to tell him what it's like to have, you know, the journey and what it takes to make it. But, you know, I, I think being, having that self-awareness is, you know, as important as a, a skill as anything you might do on a basketball court sometimes. So with Seth Curry, the calling card, as it was with his brother and his father, was the three-point shooting. With Chase Ross, the calling card is going to be the defense. So let's move over to sort of talking about that. The place I want to start is, you know, sort of where you mentioned with his defensive playmaking ability. I mean, you know, he, as you mentioned in the piece, had a steal rate of nearly 4%, block rate of, you know, 1%, which block rate of 1% for a 6'4 guard is pretty darn impressive. It's not like, you know, this is... Walker Kessler in the paint or, you know, Victor Wembanyama to use last draft example, right? But the steal rate is something I want to focus on. I tend to talk into the ground about how steal rate translates from pretty much any league to the NBA. These are old numbers, so it might be slightly different now. But, you know, when I do remember looking it up, it was basically like 91% translation rate from steal rate in NCAA <laughs> to steal rate in the NBA. Like, Granted, some of these guys are doing it because they're taking gambles on every play, and that's not Chase Ross. But, you know, either way, if you're someone who gets a ton of steals in college or in EuroLeague or in the G League, you're probably going to get a ton of steals in the NBA, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, like having a steal rate that high and, you know, for Ross as a freshman, he was the only high major freshman to um, have a steal rate of nearly four and block rate of one. So, you know, this was an impressive feat in an of itself, just, you know, even if he was gambling, attaining, you know, those numbers. Um, but like you said, he doesn't gamble, but even if you do, it, just, it, it at least shows like a willingness and um, some kind of athletic tools to, to be able to do it. But yeah, he doesn't gamble. And that skill rate, I think is something that is going to translate for him because it, it's a combination, like 
it's a combination of all of his tools coming together. Like he has mm-hmm. the strength to get up and in somebody's chest, similarly bringing up your Kings to a guy like Davion Mitchell, who maybe doesn't have the height that you tend to want from a defender. But the fact that he is as strong as he is, he can guard up in those positions, even without the height and length. Chase Ross does have decent height and he does have really good length and he's very strong. So he can do that have a physical advantage with somebody and then his length that he does have allows him to quote unquote gamble, you know, at times with pokeaways. He might not be jumping the passing lanes all the time, but he has the athletic tools to maybe reach in, try to poke the ball away and, you know, if necessary, recover, you know, back to his man because he moves so well laterally. Um, but the quick hands, he's always active. And, you know, for somebody like it, it a freshman guard like a lot of freshman guards even if they have defenses or calling card they tend to lose focus sometimes throughout the course of a game he's pretty locked in you know there's not a lot of possessions where you're, you're going to catch him sleeping um he's he tends to be in the right spots and and understanding his assignment and the scout like you'll watch him chase jordan hawkins or miles kelly and shadow him right like he knows his responsibilities and i think knowing the scout as well as he does with his traits, it's going to lead to the success of creating those um, defensive, you know, event creation circumstances. And, uh, you know, for a team that wants to play fast, which is every single team in the NBA, right. That wants to play with pace, you know, turning over winning possessions just off that kind of hustle and feel on that end is, you know, really important, um, you know, thing to bring to the table. It's fascinating that you bring up the focus. That's, you know, something that I noticed when watching his defensive film, of course, but it was almost something that I was more impressed with on the offensive end that he barely ever had the ball in his hands, but his head was always up. You know, even when he was parked in the corner, he was looking to see if, you know, hey, do I, you know, need to adjust on this play? Would this be a good time for me to cut, you know, create some space for the guy with the ball, right? It's, you know, it's really interesting to see just how locked in he seems to be, regardless of what he's doing, you know. It's rare that you see a guy standing in the corner and you're like, wow, he is dialed all the way in, you know, but that's something that I really noticed with Ross that stood out to me. And, you know, it's easier, I think, to see on the defensive end just with how he plays. But that is a huge factor in him being as effective as he is. Yeah. And that's a skill, you know, know, it's there's a lot of players who will take possessions off or lose their man, you know, backdoor and it leads to easy buckets like you know, he's his level of focus is is something that, you know, I think coaches will really appreciate. And, you know, I, I think it, it'll be interesting to see like another year, hopefully an expanded role for him. Um, and by all accounts, you know, and reports coming out of camp, that's something that, you know, is, is going to happen. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if he could keep that same level of focus and energy playing more minutes more consistently than, you know, he did as a freshman. Um, because, you know, when you know that, all right, I, I can go out there and I can be aggressive. And, you know, if I pick up four fouls, it's fine because I might probably only going to play 20 minutes, you know, uh, max anyway. Like I can go all out and, and give everything I have and play like that. It's a little harder to do that if you know that, okay, well, I might be out there 20 to 25 minutes consistently now. So I, I kind of have to pace myself a little bit. You know, that's kind of the one area um on the defensive side that I'm I'm looking to see if he can keep up because we look at the the high steal number that's something that typically you know the more experience that you get at the college level it's something that typically rises a tad but his is already so high that you yeah. know asking him to increase that um is a, you know a tall order so for me just seeing if he can bring that same energy and hover around those same you know percentages by playing more minutes, that's that's really what I think is going to be, um, you know, the the thing to look for for him going forward. It'll definitely be worth watching. It's sort of an interesting debate because there are some guys where, not to go back to the Kings well again, but here we are. I mean, JaVale McGee, right, is someone who early in his career with the Denver Nuggets, you know, tons and tons of reports about how, you know, he's not paying, you know, he's not, he's too inattentive on the defensive end, you know, he's you know, this and that and this and that. And then he gets into a smaller role on better teams. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, okay, 15 minute a night starting center JaVale McGee is exceptionally effective. Like 15 minute a game backup JaVale McGee is a really effective defensive player. You put him up to, you know, 25, 30 minutes a game and maybe it doesn't quite go as well. You know, sometimes, sometimes that's just who guys are, right? You know, 10 to 15 minute a game players. And if that's who Ross is, you know, I think there's still a role for him. I think the question, as you mentioned, becomes, 
can he do more in a more expanded role or is he just someone who's you know going to be sort of a backish end of the bench kind of player yeah and i happen to fall on the the side of i think he he does have more that he can bring to the table um Mm -hmm. again like i i don't know how much opportunity he's going to get to show all of the skills i'm just looking for you know you know some slight improvements uh i i mean you know if you look at the minutes he played and um you know try to project his role forward a little bit i don't necessarily know if he's going to have the kobe buffkin experience you know who went from three points a game to 14 or 15 uh and was able to be the primary ball handler like if there are no injuries in that marquette backcourt there are just not going to be enough possessions for ross to you know jump in role like that i mean as is he was 14th on this team in usage (laughs) already which um you know again means he's totally fine by playing that role but even if he jumps up to you know eighth or ninth in in usage on the team it still doesn't mean that he's going to be a guy who's the primary ball handler so um his next season is going to be interesting just because it's a team that is expected to win with guys who have been there and it's an older team um with experience but he's a part of that now and you know one of the other things I, i talked about is like you know i coached high school players for 10 years and it's crazy sometimes watching a player come back from the summer how much of a jump they've taken how much of a leap they've taken in their development whether it's you know because they've matured physically or just something clicks the skills start to come together like these kids are still young you know like young nba players are still young and still figuring that stuff out so having an off season now where he's not getting accustomed to the speed of the college basketball game he's completely comfortable in the system and comfortable with the coaching staff and the players that he's playing with there's a confidence that you can come into that next season with and he seems like a very confident guy out on the court so i think that kind of confidence will i think it's going to be hard to keep him off of the court and because he's such a defensive uh defensively versatile guy i also think that marquette will have the opportunity to play some funky lineups you know and let him do some some stuff on that end and uh, I, I just think it's going to be really intriguing to watch, you know, how how much he plays and where his development goes. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the 14th highest usage rate on the team, right? That's almost guaranteed to go up just by, like, you know, Omax being gone. Purely that alone, you know, I think should boost his yeah. usage rate up a bit. But it'll be very interesting to see if, you know, by the end of the year, is he, say fifth on the team in usage rate or is he like ninth or tenth right i mean just that alone would be a huge difference in terms of you know what we're what we're seeing from him on both ends of the floor and you know omax is interesting because i actually think he could kind of take over the role that omax brought to the team and you know maybe not positionally but like you know all of that energy and defensive versatility um even if omax wasn't like generating a ton of steals and, and blocks or at, at Marquette, which was always a kind of a weird um, aspect. He, there was an energy and an effort and a spark that he brought to the team. And when you lose that, you know, it's a, it's a big part of your identity. I think having a guy like Chase Ross still on that team who can fulfill a lot of the, the energy spark plug um, aspects of what your a team needs to, to come in and play hard and for an entire season I think he's the perfect guy to kind of step into that role, um, you know, at, at least from an energy perspective. So, you know, I, I think the usage, obviously it'll go up. Um, but even if, again, it isn't one of the the top guys, cause he's not going to take playmaking duties away from Igadaro and, uh, and Kolek and Cam Jones is there to, to score the rock and, you know, Joplin's going to take another step. You know, they have a lot of guys, but, Again, the fact that I think he's going to be able to contribute without having a high usage is just, you know, a feather in his cap. And you mentioned earlier how basically every NBA team is looking to run these days. I mean, nobody in college basketball runs anywhere near like that unless you get to, you know, some of the D3 teams. But, you know, Marquette was, you know, one of the more fast-paced offenses in college basketball last year. I mean, they ended up 23rd out of 363 Division One teams in terms of scoring, right? This is This is a team that, you know, again, relative by college basketball standards moved quite a bit. And, you know, Prosper brought a ton of that energy, but, you know, they do need to keep that going. And they have some of the players returning, but, 
you know, again, it's it's a big deal when you lose a first, you know, this is asinine to say, but it's a big deal when you lose a first round pick. Yeah. And, you know, in the transition aspect, um, I think Marquette spent about 14% of their total possessions um, in transition. And Chase Ross, I think that number was at 27%. So this is clearly a guy who likes to play fast and pick up the pace. And whether that's him, you know, creating those defensive events and, and cause, causing that issue or just filling the wing or even grabbing and going himself, he likes to run. And yeah. he's good. You know, I think he's good at it. And I think it's going to be good for the team. And like you said, Omax is a guy who's athletic and you see him in the open floor. You're like, oh, my gosh, I understand why you know he was a first round pick uh, right. or why he sh- why he shot up, you know, in the pre-draft cycle because of, you know, everything that he brought from that, you know, an athletic perspective. I think Ross can fulfill a lot of that role for him that they, they're missing. Yeah, I mean, basically all not literally all, but basically all of Ross's possessions last year were either spot up or transition looks. Right. It's like, you know, either he's the guy parked in the corner, you know, waiting for the ball to swing to him or he's, you know, running out as fast as he can. I mean, yeah, you mentioned 27 percent of his possessions in transition. Right. That's clearly someone who's, you know, willing, ready, willing and able to get up and down the floor. Yeah. And, you know, again, easy buckets. That's what, you know, coaches want that at the college level. Coaches want at the NBA level Uh, running out in transition with a guy like Tyler Kolek, who's going to hit you if you're open, Um, you know, spotting up next to a guy like with Oso Iguodaro being an initiator and, you know, running a lot of those, you know, kind of big man creator actions. These are all things that are going to prepare him for the next level. So let's move now more fully into the offensive stuff. So you mentioned in the piece, he shot 32% from three on just under two attempts per game, which, you know, not too bad volume given his minutes load, you know, not, you know, someone who's letting it fly every single time they touch the ball. Right. But, you know, the 1.7 attention, 1.7 1.7 attempts per game looks a little bit better when you realize he played, you know, around 16 minutes a game rather than, right. you know, full starters minutes. But you do mention something that I think is very much worth noting in the piece that while the unguarded numbers are pretty decent for him, the guarded numbers, not so much. And on the one hand, you know, he is someone who the vast majority of the time he's shooting, he's going to be left open, right? He's not the focus of the defensive game plan, but you, again, you mentioned in the piece, you know, when teams actually contested him, he shot just under 27%. And on guarded spot ups in high school, you know, 19%, right? This is someone who struggles with a contest. And on the one hand, given the rest of his skill set, maybe that's not the end of the world, right? You're not going to ask him to be creating from beyond the three point line. But that that is an issue because once you get to the NBA level, if you can shoot at all, teams will close out on you. And if you can't make them pay for it, you know, he doesn't, I think, have a varied enough offensive skill set that that's something that you can just sort of dismiss. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, that's the big thing, right? Like, if you're going to be... Because yeah. I, I think he's going to come in and he's going to be labeled as a 3 and D guard. Sure. You know, slash wing. And you have to have the three part to live up to that label. Now, you know, when I... You know, I've seen him shoot in person. I think he's got a pretty shot. You know, the ball, it's high arcing. Um, when it falls in the net, it splashes through, you know, it's, it's very pretty shot when it goes in, uh, but it's got to go in more. And, yeah. you know, you, again, you'd like to chalk some of that up to the low volume of variance and, but consistently not being able to hit those shots at, you know, previous le- levels as well. That's when you start going, okay, well, how do we fix the issue? Now, I, you know, I think that, again, learning the speed of the game coming from high school to college, that's certainly an aspect of why, Maybe those numbers look a little lower. You have to get used to bigger, stronger, longer guys closing out to you and how fast do you need to release the ball and shoot over them. So I think just having another year of college experience and not having to adjust to that will help him out. Another work of offseason and, you know, getting better with the shot and putting in work into the shot itself is an important aspect of it. But, I, you know, last year it felt like at times, like I don't think he was ever afraid to shoot. Like he was a guy who mm-hmm. did hit big shots in, in, big moments um wasn't afraid to hesitate but like his shot preparation at times took a little bit too long and you know whether it was you know a kind of an awkward hop into the shot or you know one two it there was just a slight half second where you go if he eliminated that it would look a lot cleaner and so i think if he can eliminate that and get his shot off a little bit quicker those numbers are going to go up and you know, if those numbers just go up a little bit, his overall percentage, you know, all of a sudden he's shooting 
36, 37%. And if he gets more minutes, you're looking at, you know, four attempts a game, you know, that's something that you can really go, okay, this guy, I can buy into this shooting. So the good news is I don't think that there's a a super tough path for him to improve on the shooting numbers. I mean, the free throw percentages are adequate, you know, so 77%. um, He's always, he's usually over 70%, even in high school. So he's not a bad shooter by any stretch, but those numbers also don't indicate great shooter. So, you know, clearly shooting is something he's going to have to focus on um, to stick. So, you know, this is going to be an interesting year to see if that happens because, again, he's playing with guys who are going to get him a ton of good looks. He's got to make teams pay. He's done a good job of that historically. He's got to do a better job of it even when guys now are paying more attention to him with a larger role. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned the volume. Like, per 40 minutes, he's already at four threes a game, right? So as long as he, you know, has an increase in minutes and keeps up the same sort of shooting frequency, he'll be fine. But, yeah, again, it's sort of the... The consistency that you mentioned, right? You know, if he's going to be labeled as a three and D player, which I don't think he quite is, I think based on your previous statement that you would agree that, you know, maybe the three could use some work, right? So certainly could. But, you know, the idea being that he's at where he needs to be in terms of how many he puts up, right? It's not like the kind of thing where you need to, you know, shoot twice as many threes a game to space the floor for us. It's more just, as you mentioned, you know, that, that consistency that, ability to better handle, you know, harder closeouts and, you know, anything that you have feet of space for in the college game, you have inches of space for in the NBA game, right? So it's even more imperative as you climb levels to sort of iron out those inconsistencies. Yeah. And the other thing too, I think with a more consistent role, you feel a little bit more comfortable in, okay, well, if I knock down this shot, I'll stay on the floor. If I miss the shot, I might not play as much, right? So like, there's also having a larger role gives you a little bit more confidence that, you know what, it's okay if I, you know, miss a shot, I'm going to go and take the next one and work through it. Right. But unwillingness is, you know, never been an issue. And I think, you know, when you look at a lot of guys who struggle to shoot, unwillingness is one of the biggest factors, because if you're afraid to work on the improvements in game, then it's really hard to get better, even if you're working on them in practice. Um, so I don't you could think just say Ben Simmons, it's fine. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> I, he wasn't the only guy I was thinking of. Um, yeah. But you know, I, I think for, for Chase, there's already a base. You know, it's not like he's shooting 25% from three and his shot looks funky. I think his shot aesthetically looks pretty nice. Um, yeah. So it's really just about reps and, you know, taking and making shots at this point. Because when he makes the shots, it allows him to be an athlete and attack those closeouts and, you know, be an interesting, more dynamic offensive threat. And, you know, those are the aspects of his game that I think could make him a little bit more interesting than just like a standard classic three and D guy. And speaking of attacking those closeouts, one of his best offensive skills is how good he is around the basket. I mean, for, you know, finishing 58% of his attempts at the rim as a guard is pretty solid, especially for the archetype of player that he can be. And, you know, really, again, it sort of goes back to, you know, the, maybe you can't be a Troy Daniels, Anthony Morrow style one trick pony anymore, where all you do is shoot three pointers, right? With Ross, it's like, okay, you know, if he is forced off the line, you know, he's not, you know, the most creative guard in the world, right? You know, you're not going to be looking at his handles and, you know, having your mind blown or anything, but he's effective, right? He gets to the rim decently well. He could finish a little bit better, but given where he's at as a 6'4 guard, you know, he's pretty solid in that area for what he needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he, again, I think those finishing numbers are likely to improve because I think that he does have like the tools in his toolbox to be a versatile finisher that he's shown throughout the year. Like he's strong enough clearly to go through a defender and, and, you know, embrace contact. He's bouncy enough to be able to play above the rim. Um, and, you know, you know, I'll mention at some point, you know, there's a, an interesting stat combining that athleticism and, and the dunking with his defensive stats. Uh, but he's also kind of crafty enough with the hang time and the touch shots around the rim. He has the extensions like because of his length, like there are things and indicators to be like, all right, this tough finishing package for this kid. And, you know, even with shooting 32% from three, you know, he's over 56% uh, true shooting. So, you know, he's still able to play an efficient offensive role. It's just, okay. With a few improvements, like he might be really efficient, and now it's like, oh, this is a very interesting player um, because if he can be that dynamic defensively while being, you know, 
a 60 plus true shooting guy. Now we're like, all right, now we're talking about a guy who a team might take in the first round. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that that's what intrigues me about him. I mean, you mentioned just how exceptionally well he combines all of his tools on the defensive end when it comes to steals, right? You know, his strength, his athleticism, and, you know, with the offensive stuff, I mean, you see some of that sometimes, right? Like, you know, okay, he can play above the rim, right? Okay, you know, he's not, you know, unless it's, you know, someone huge, he's not going to get bodied by whoever he's defending and not be able to, you know, push through them on his way to the basket. You know, it's, Again, I mean, it's a lot of what we talked about with the shooting too, right? It's just the consistency of it, you know, and if he can be sort of consistent in a 15-minute-per-game role and more consistent this year in a larger role, you know, that would be huge. On the flip side, if it's like, okay, you know, maybe he only really has that burst in short stretches, and if you leave him out there for 30 minutes, his finishing numbers go down, right? Either way, it's sort of an interesting look into where he's sort of headed in terms of his development. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I tend to believe that, you know, he's going to trend up instead of kind of, you know, burning out with that added, uh, you know, minute load and, and work rate. Um, yeah, I think he's going to turn it up a notch. So before we wrap this up, let's sort of move on to the last section of the article with his passing. And, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, maybe he could do a little bit more in terms of the raw playmaking numbers. He does have a positive assist to turnover ratio, which... I think sort of fits into the sort of ideal of him, right? Of He's not someone who makes all that many mistakes. So, you know, maybe he's not the flashiest, but ultimately if you get someone on your squad who you can have as a connector on both ends of the floor, right? You know, that's, I think that's closer to his sort of ideal role than the three and D archetype. And you know, a lot of that depends on him developing a bit more as a passer, but that's something where, you know, again, he's not someone who you don't trust as a passer in the rare occasions where he does have the ball in his hands. Yeah. Cause I, you know, ultimately I think his role right now is play finisher. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's doing what is asked of him, right? Like if he didn't have that kind of feel, he'd turn the ball over more often than he did. And, you know, as a freshman in a smaller role, even, even in a smaller role, like having that positive assist to turnover ratio to me screams opportunity, not lack of feel. And right again, like, I don't think they're going to put the ball in his hands a ton because Tyler Kolek's going to handle a lot of that ball handling duties. Um, Cam Jones going to handle handle a lot of the ball handling. Um, also, Agadaro is going to handle a lot of the playmaking. So there aren't going to be like a ton of opportunities for him to just soak up major usage and show off how he can manipulate, you know, a ball screen. But the flashes at least are there of you know good feel in which all right he's coming off a screen here oh that's that was nice he hit a little wraparound pass to the corner or oh he uh somebody hard closed to him in the corner and now he's attacking the closeout oh wow he just nice little drop off to the dunker spot at the rim uh and you know i i think in the nba we're seeing guys like bruce brown right who are playing these funky roles where they're going from playmaking guard to oh, now I'm going to be like a screener and roll to the rim and play out of the short roll. And like, I think that's something that he is going to be able to do. Again, uh, you know, I don't think that he has shown the same kind of playmaking chops as Bruce Brown or, you know, I, I mentioned Gary Payton the second in the article, but, you know, Gary Payton was much older than him, um, you know, at Oregon State. And now if you look at the role that he played, you know, he's played in the NBA and with the Warriors, kind of the role that I think Chase Ross is going to be asked to play in the NBA where defensive guy set some screens, get out and transition, be athletic, knock down open shots when you can. And like you said, be a, a connected piece. So it, it's almost like a three and D plus kind of new age guard that, you know, again, we talked about how he might not be the most versatile guy in the world at the beginning of the show, but like maybe in the NBA, because they'll be able to use some of the, simplicity to expand that game that makes him look a little bit more versatile yeah bruce bound is a really interesting example to bring up for pretty much anybody but it is really cool you know the warriors i think did this more with gary payton in the second but the sort of you know four out one in where the you know guy who's in around the basket is you know short guard right he's like okay you're in for you know your defensive presence but on the offensive end you know just cut and you know i mean the number of lobs thrown to gary payton the second it's pretty crazy you know given given his size he does not play like a player of that size but i mean if you have the skill set to do that that's a really valuable role for an nba team to be just 
all right, defensive presence on the one end and on the offensive end, you know, we can park you away from the play with a pretty high degree of confidence that when the ball touch your, touches your hands, you can be a play finisher, as you mentioned, or, you know, whether that be driving to the rim or just, you know, being a spot up guy, the sample size was incredibly small for him, you know, running the offense. So I don't want to take too much away from that, but he was very successful in his limited pick and roll ball handler possessions and his very limited handoff possessions. I mean, 96th and 87th percentile. Again, the sample size is too small to draw anything too definitive, but that does match with the film of like when he does get the ball in his hands on those rare occasions, he usually knows what to do with it. Yeah, and you can just see in the film, you know, it kind of matches the eye test in in that like he has like good touch when he does pass the ball. He's not like firing a ball 100 miles an hour to a guy who's standing three feet away from him, right? Like sure. he's not, you know, he's he's not throwing the ball six feet away from the shooter's shooting pocket in the corner when he is hitting somebody, you know, in the rare occasion where he's running a pick and roll. So I I think that it's there. It just needs to be unlocked. It may be unfortunate that we don't see the right team construct to see him unlock it. But, you know, a, a, another guy who I can maybe see a similar role to him playing is somebody like Emmanuel Quickly, you know, mm-hmm. who at Kentucky was a guy who just ran off a million, you know, floppy sets all day and was, a, again, an off-ball floor spacer. And he's been playing with the ball in his hands a little bit more often, you know, since he's gotten to the NBA with the Knicks. And he's utilized this, you know, legitimate floater, um, you know, when he gets in the lane and that's opened up lob, you know, uh, opportunities for Mitchell Robinson and um you know defensively he showed stuff in the NBA that he didn't get to show it at Kentucky in the same way and now you know I so like it there's a bunch of different guys that I could see Chase Ross you know kind of emulating in the NBA and kind of being you know this dynamic funky new age guard that you know coaches have just been so creative in using these guys that it I think there are a lot of really fun opportunities for him um I think he has a chance to show all of that this year but you know it also wouldn't shock me if you know we're having the same conversation a year from now coming into his junior season right um where some of these other guys on Marquette maybe do leave and you know he steps into a larger role or uh but at the same token I think they're gonna. There's gonna be a lot of spotlight on this Marquette team. I think they have the opportunity to have a deep run. And I think that's also gonna help kind of shine light on on Ross. So I, I I think there's that opportunity this year as well. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap this one up? Yeah, I guess I'll just you know I mentioned one uh you know fun stat um from Chase Ross you know in our our Bartorvik uh queries that we love so much in the draft community um. <laughs> Going back in in their database as far as we can for freshmen from high majors, uh, for prospects with a steal percentage of three point nine percent, block percentage of one, and ten made dunks. That list is Zion Williamson, Marcus Smart, Nerlens Noel, DeAnthony Melton, Ethan Happ, and Chase Ross. So you know it's a pretty solid list with guys who've played in the NBA and had pretty good careers save for the outlier of Ethan Happ um who is a much different position than Chase Ross is playing but i you know i think that defensive um and athletic combination that he's shown to bring leads me to believe he's trending in the right direction all he needs to do is just uh sharpen up that offensive game a little bit and this is a guy that you know we could be talking about as you know maybe a guy that not many people are talking about right now but would really heat up, you know, around February and March. And, uh, you know, I think that's fun right now because right now there's no games. It's, you know, just a, a lot of hype, a lot of buzz, a lot of fluff. And this is the time to shoot your shot and, you know, dive deep. And, you know, that's what you do on this show. That's what, you know, Maxwell does for us at No Ceilings a lot with his No Stone Unturned uh, series. And, you know, I feel like this is kind of, um, you know, fitting those two concepts together and and me, you know, looking at an uncut gem like Chase Ross and, and giving him a little bit of shine here. That's obviously a very strong list. I think Marcus Smart is really the one that stands out to me for that. I almost mentioned this when we were talking earlier about Ross's strength. And you know that's something that shows up for Marcus Smart as well, right? The number of times that yeah. seven footers try to post him up and embarrass themselves. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing you could definitely see Chase Ross doing. But 
with Smart, I mean, he's got a lot of similarities to that sort of role thing, right? I mean, he was, you know, a star guard at, at OK State, right? You know, sixth overall pick in the draft. He comes into the NBA. He focuses the vast majority of his attention on his defensive identity. And now he's a defensive player of the year winner. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's it's certainly a great player to emulate. You know, I think Marcus Smart obviously had shown much more intriguing playmaking flashes um, at, at a higher volume there. Yeah. Um, right. Like he definitely had the pedigree that uh, as that star guard during that season that, you know, Chase Ross didn't get to show off. Um, and when you're trying to compare the limited minutes to a guy who has had that kind of sustained success, you know, obviously you have to be careful um, as I know you are, but yeah, defensively, like, can Chase Ross be a defensive player of the year? Probably not. You know, I think most people would probably argue that they don't know if Marcus Smart should have been the defensive player of the year. Well, that's a really, different conversation. Because it's really hard for guards to have that same impact as bigs, right? But can he be a guy who in the NBA who teams are like, fuck, Chase Ross is guarding me tonight? Like, you know, like, th- I think he could be that. And, yeah. you know, there are a lot of guys who have long careers being that. And if he has the offense to get him to the NBA and he shows that, and that's an encouraging sign because without the offense, you know, he's going to have a tougher path. You know, it's going to be a lot more of second round pick G league stints, you know, but if he works his way to getting that offense consistent enough to where he's, you know, going to be a potential first round guy. And, and I happen to think he has that kind of potential. Now we're talking about, you know, a guy who's making a major leap, even if it doesn't necessarily look all that much like it, you know, you, there might be a little nuance to it, but like he could take a major leap as a prospect without, throwing up these monster counting stats. And, you know, I think that's the exciting part about scouting. Cool. Now that you've mentioned that stat that I completely forgot to circle back to, which is entirely my bad. Do you have anything else that you want to mention before we wrap this up? <laughs> um, no, I, you know, I look, I'm, I'm really excited for, uh, you know, this year at no ceilings and uh, this year just in for basketball in general, NBA as well. Uh, we got some fun announcements coming up at No Ceilings pretty soon that we're excited to share. And, uh, you know, we've been officially back now for about a week or so, right? Yeah, I a think. week and a half. Yeah, so um, things are only going to, you know, the train's only going to keep rolling <laughs> at No Ceilings. So I'm I'm excited to to hang out with everybody who wants to hang out with us. All right. Well, he is Corey Tullaba. You can find him on Twitter at Corey Tullaba. And you can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com as well. We are fully underway now for year three, and as Corey teased, we've got some exciting announcements coming up, so be sure to be on the lookout for those. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end, and if you have any feedback on the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.